0: Welcome to episode 44 of the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Alex Shadid, Outreach Assistant at the IRPP. In a move that caught many Canadians off guard last week, the Liberal government announced that the federal department known as Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, or INAC, would be dissolved and replaced by two separate entities under the supervision of a pair of cabinet ministers. The change sees Jane Philpott, the former Minister of Health, become the Minister of Indigenous Services, and Carolyn Bennett, Former Minister of Indigenous and Northern Affairs, become the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs. Now, while the move may have come as a surprise to many, the idea of splitting INAC into a program delivery branch and a policy branch isn't exactly a new one. It was actually one of the recommendations outlined in the 1996 report of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. with so much change in the machinery of government and nation-to-nation relations in the past 20 years, many are doubtful that such a strategy would work in today's context. Belden Coburn is a PhD candidate in political science at Queen's University and Anishinaabe from pitwick He reacted to the dismantling of Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada in an article he wrote in Policy Options. I caught up with him on Skype to get his take on the news. I also have some important news to share regarding the Policy Options podcast make sure to keep listening after the interview, as I'm sure you always do, to find out what that is. So joining me now on the podcast is Veldin Coburn. Veldin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So what exactly, let's start off with a little history lesson here. What exactly was recommended in the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples around 20 years ago with regards to the department that was up until a week ago known as INAC?
1: What was recommended was exactly what the uh, ministers had mentioned at Rideau Hall last week, uh, is that the department would be split into a service organization or a service ministry, as well as a more uh, crown aboriginal, but crown indigenous as it were today, ministry uh, with Northern Affairs. Um, That's really superficial. A reading of the recommendation but that was essentially most of it there was a little bit of ancillary kind of recommendations around the restructuring of the machinery of government that was also involved in our cap which entailed a little bit more around cabinet committees and central agencies and uh, greater supports and more consolidation of uh, policy control within uh, the new minister of aboriginal affairs or indigenous affairs as it were Um, we hadn't heard anything like that. But that's basically the recommendation.
0: You noted in your article that it was kind of a reflection of a growing trend in government at that time in terms of the organization of public administration. Uh, How did it reflect that?
1: Well, at the time, there was like this enormous... Uh, as I describe it, is upheaval within the public service. I guess reorganization, massive reorganization in in the early 90s. So it follows in uh, some great study, like large studies, the Nielsen Task Force in the 1980s that saw government becoming so great and unwieldy. Mulroney's cabinet had expanded to something like 40 ministers and ministries. And by the early 1990s, uh, there had been uh, program review, there was a program review that was basically the Nielsen task force with uh, the deputy Min- Deputy prime minister, Eric Nielsen, under Mulrooney, Never really implemented. But basically on uh, Kim Campbell's, almost like in her first day on the job, is she implemented that and slashed the number of ministries from uh, over 30 down to low 20s. Uh, cabinet was slashed. Uh, the... Credit liberals came in, continued program review to slash program sizes. So this was a different milieu within restructuring the machinery of government. So that kind of sets the environment for which these recommendations were made. So they was looking back and it was taking uh, stock of this what was going on within government at the time. And that is much different than what
0: it is today. So would you mind describing how it is different from today?
1: Well, I mean, at the time, the impetus was to get government under control. Like I said, it would become really large and unwieldy, they said. And they really wanted a much leaner uh, and efficient government that retained some business-like operations. But to have more focused departments and... um, a much smaller, tighter cabinet. So today, uh, there was uh, a lot of effort put in in the mid-90s to bring government under control in that sense, and they did bring it down to a quite manageable level. But in the last 10 years, I guess, uh, program expenditures have expanded and the size of cabinet has once again expanded Uh, It has become a larger government. So it's a trend that is moving in the opposite direction than what we had seen in the early 90s and and late 90s that carried it out.
0: And what has prompted, I I guess, that shift back towards a larger government and and away from those lean principles and how public administration should be organized?
1: Well, there's a noticeable spike in the size of government as a, as a measurement of, of GDP. It, it spiked in, in 2009, right immediately after the 2008 financial crisis. So the stimulus package, uh, the stimulus, um, what the Harper government had labeled the Canadian Economic Action Plan, had made a greater role for the uh, government in the economy. So there was this expansion in the government. Um it had brought it back down slightly but it's still it's still much larger than it was than it than it the late 90s when the cretching government had still really tightened the reins and and constrained growth in government like basically keeping it very steady and now it's 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 grown a bit and it's sort of expanding a bit under the Trudeau government. like They injected quite a bit in their last two budgets to grow the
0: size of government. Why is, um, I guess, the changes that the Liberal government have implemented, why is that out of touch with, I guess, um, the contextual aspects of when the recommendation in RCAP was made?
1: So when those uh, so with the passage of twenty years, so much has changed uh, the direction of government, uh, the reform of the machinery of government, especially back then, focusing a policy function within one department uh, and focusing the expenditures in another, well, that has kind of been addressed in in, 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 in less forceful fashion over the course of twenty years. Um, as I noted, like there was larger trends underway that really, I guess, also erode the effectiveness of that particular recommendation. So I pointed to Donald Savoy's study, Governing from the Center, which addresses, I guess, those who have the power on, and hands on the policy levers. And over the past forty years, which Savoy himself points to uh, Trudeau Sr. as beginning this trend, is that there was greater concentration of uh, executive power within the center of government. And this leaks away from these line departments that essentially, at one point in history, had a great deal of autonomy from the prime minister. So the prime minister was once seen as um, first among equals, uh, inter pares. It's no longer the case that he's sitting in cabinet as first among equals, is now he's the first and the one and only. So policy is being driven from that center instead of having uh, INAC as now its own policy driving center as it was viewed or that was the vision from RCAP, it's really being driven now from uh, the prime minister's office, his senior advisors, Privy Council and to a lesser extent from the uh, other central agencies, particularly Finance Canada. Uh, So Bill Morneau, who probably puts a lot of um, constraints on the financial, I guess, uh, and expenditure side. So it's no longer the case when IRCAP says, hey, we really need a department that is – has a lot more clout within the policy arena, particularly in the federal policy arena, because that function or informally has been eroded with this longer trend of uh, prime ministers taking back that power to themselves.
0: So So, uh, as power has been concentrated into the PMO and policy decision making has been concentrated into the PMO over the past couple of years, what Mm -hmm. effect has that had on uh policymaking with regards to indigenous people in Canada
1: uh well it's it's largely been driven by uh, a small select few um, we noticed that quite uh, evidently underneath Paul Martin he was he had created uh, the Aboriginal Affairs Secretariat within PCO to coordinate federal policy and this was in 2003 when he had assumed the Prime Minister's uh, uh, office and that was basically driving it across all the departments um basically being a filter saying uh, and it was speaking outwards rather than uh, just collecting all these policy initiatives especially from inac and then there's always this uh, mistaken belief that inac is the as I say the locus of of federal indigenous affairs policy. And it's really not because it's quite spread out throughout the, the uh, government. So uh, over 30 departments have a hand in Indigenous affairs, mostly delivering programming that is driven by the policy that's developed at the centre. So INAC is really only one ministry. Uh, it, it's, one of the, it's the largest one, to be sure. But there's also Health Canada that has its First Nations Inuit Health Branch, and that department consists of 70 to 60 percent of the entirety of Health Canada, which is a considerably large department delivering health policy and programming for Indigenous peoples on reserve. So it really it's 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 uh, it's uh, difficult to say that Nine Act still or really has the, uh, the power to drive indigenous affairs policy and creating this one or splitting off the department, hiving it off and giving it to Carolyn Bennett is really going to implement what was recommended in RCAP, which was to have one ministry that brings indigenous affairs, uh, up into, I guess, I guess more of an cabinet
0: position. So, so INAC in the latest policy change and the cabinet shuffle was spread up into two different agencies and one focused on the delivery of services and the other focused on, I guess, policy making with regards to indigenous communities. Why were those two aspects of the relationship with indigenous communities selected as, I guess, the basis for two government branches and not other aspects? of, uh, I guess, policymaking with regard to indigenous communities? Uh,
1: well, I think it's really, it's probably the most simplistic view of INAC is that on the one hand, it develops, it it just splits INAC into policy on one hand and programs on the other. So uh, there was three historical critiques that I guess our had ex- observed that they constantly heard. Uh, one was, yes, Um, INAC operated under legacy of colonialism and paternalism, you know, needed some change within that wasn't really going to come be addressed necessarily through dividing up an existing department. The other one was INAC's performance in the federal policy arena is inadequate and Uh, The other one was uh, INAC is evasive for negligence on the matter of meeting federal treaty and claims obligations. And that was a little bit more of the Crown relations part. So um, I think they wanted to take those last two pieces, those last two complaints that they constantly heard, the inadequacy of federal policy, uh, like focused in in Indigenous affairs policy, And also the complaint that they were not meeting their federal treaty and claims obligations and focus that into one ministry. So give that to one minister and we can put it underneath Crown Indigenous Relations. And what's left is the programming that's already been decided. It's basically it. It doesn't take a whole lot of uh, wrangling within departments to get programs and services delivered. It's fairly straightforward operationally. But it was those other two that seemed a little bit or or actually um, they were falling short on. So hive those off from the existing departments. What's left or what are the two? There's policy and there's programming. And that was about it. A fairly simplistic
0: approach. And is this something that today's Indigenous leaders, the leaders of uh, many Indigenous communities in Canada, is this a move that they had been pushing for?
1: You know, I was looking through the the minutes and the witness lists on the House of Commons and Senate committee lists for um, Indigenous affairs, and I didn't see anything since this government has taken... uh, uh, Since the election, since uh, the Liberals have taken power, I've seen nothing within uh, uh, meeting notes where anyone had asked for this. Now, oddly, Carolyn Bennett said, well, um, we were talking in in the working group on the review of the law and policies around Indigenous peoples that two panels, the Métis panel and the Chiefs of Ontario panel said, go back to volume two. And read that. Well, volume two is also over a thousand pages long, and this is just one section with a with you know, two recommendations um, out of over a hundred in that particular volume. So I don't know why they seized upon this. Uh, nobody seems to have been asking for it. So much, uh, so many changes have taken place that the urgency and relevance of it has, you know, almost entirely disappeared. Um, I don't, I had heard nothing in the last <laughs> 10 years of anyone saying, look, look uh, we have to uh, implement these two particular recommendations. So many other recommendations uh, still have great currency, such as, you know, addressing socioeconomic conditions, housing remains poor, educational outcomes remain poor, and those still hold, hold their weight. But these particular two uh, seem a little bit bizarre to me why they were seized upon.
0: Uh, What's your rationale? What's your speculation in terms of why the government chose this recommendation in that regard?
1: Uh, It's symbolic. Like they said, they were dismantling, um, uh, I guess, what Trudeau had said was a creaky old structure that had been pushed to its limits, I guess. And um so some i mean even like NDP front runner for leadership Charlie Angus says he dismantled Inac and sure symbolically it is the collapse of a pretty uh, colonial institution that uh, indigenous people would like to see gone but what happens behind the scenes with you, you know the federal government's hands in administering indigenous affairs still continues so I think it may hold more significance in terms of symbolism than actual, uh, changes in practical outcomes and, um, the eventual outcomes of, uh, indigenous peoples.
0: And it's funny that you mentioned that because, uh, that's been one of the talking points that, uh, not only the Liberal Party, but Carolyn Bennett has been repeating, is that it's a move towards decolonization. Do you see it in that regard? Or is it just, as you were saying, more symbolic?
1: Uh, No, I don't see it as decolonizing at all. Uh, I mean, most evidently, it's still ministries that remain, um, you know, for Her Majesty the Crown, in exercise of Indigenous affairs over and governing Indigenous peoples these aren't uh, ministries that are administered by indigenous peoples and the crown still holds absolute sovereignty so it's it's a little bit weird it, it's still retained on the colonial side of the uh or the colonizer side of the colonial divide it's 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 it is a of nothing in terms of sovereignty or not even shared sovereignty with uh indigenous peoples so There's nothing
0: decolonizing about it. And you also mentioned the the many, I guess, administrative issues with INAC. Would you mind going going over, I guess, a brief history of how that department has evolved and why so many people see it as dysfunctional and, I guess, uh, ready to be broken apart in in an effort to try to improve both the programs and the policy aspects of it?
1: Uh, Yeah, so uh, uh, INAC itself has gone through so many changes and transformations since its inception, even before um, Canada um, became its own country. Like when it was still the Dominion of Canada under British rule, there was a Department of uh, Indian Affairs or something along that line that was uh, still like the British Department of Indian Affairs. And this began back in 18th century and 1700s. And I guess immediately after Confederation, there was the Department of Indian Affairs, and it is bounced between a branch of a department uh, back to a department and into another branch. And as a branch passed around, Department of Mines, uh, the Interior, I believe, uh, Mines and Citizenship, being merged with the branch of Northern Affairs that was with uh, the Department of the Interior, bringing those together. Even Parks Canada, which is now its own agency, emerged out of out of INAC in 1978. So there have been, it has been pushed together, put with other parts of the machinery. government. Uh, new sectors have been created so many changes that have gone on. Yet this is the only celebrated change that has really been brought to the public's attention is that somehow we're dividing the department into two. Uh meanwhile, internally it's it's already carved up into pieces that are that can be quite easily turned into their own ministry. So it really only changes the vertical reporting re, uh, res, um, relationships into two. Uh, <laughs> instead of just one uh so today it's what we see is nothing like you know the the colonial structure it was before it's still a colonial structure but it's gone through so many changes even since our cap that um it, it doesn't seem quite a handy recommendation for today's situation
0: so I can obviously tell you the, the pessimism that you have with regards to improving uh, the administrative aspect of, uh, I guess, uh, indigenous uh, po- policy making with regards to uh, indigenous communities in Canada. But what about the legal aspect? I mean, there's been lots of calls recently for the dismantling of the Indian Act. Do you think that this is uh, a good first step towards that?
1: Uh, I don't think so, because if you look back um, in the last 20 years, Indigenous affairs has become also uh, more more responsible for even greater number of uh, legislative and regulatory instruments. And those have been enacted since 1996 when RCAP came out. So uh, a lot of people think that INAC is driven solely by the Indian Act. But now it still oversees and administers so many other pieces of legislation. They have their hands in uh, in Indigenous affairs far greater and far deeper, far wider reaching than just the Indian Act. Uh, Certainly quite a few Indigenous uh, First Nations have opted out of the Indian Act now and have um, entered into self-government agreements. And there's a great push to get onto that. And that will eventually... Remove Indigenous peoples from the Indian Act, but there's so many smaller bands, some that are as small as 200 uh, individuals living within their communities, where they would never have the, or they, you know, I wouldn't want to say never, but they would they don't have the capacity to administer uh, governance and the administration of, I guess, delivery of, of programs and services within their communities. On their own. So, I mean, if you can imagine a community of 200, 250 people, a small, rural, and remote, pretty remote in northwestern Ontario, having its own Department of Health and having its own Department of Education, and and um, if they were also underneath, you know, First Nations uh, Land Management Act, which is, I guess, uh, another piece of legislation where you can opt out of certain provisions of the Indian Act and and administer your own land management. Then uh, you might be taking, you know, 50 or 60 people out of the community to run what would be seen as these departments within your community. So they don't really quite have the capacity to deliver those and would probably always be underneath the paternalistic care of of uh, INAC. Unless, of course, they were part of a greater uh, tribal council or something like that.
0: Another arrangement. So given this convoluted structure and obviously the, the, the resource limitations with regards to smaller communities uh, administering uh, their own affairs. Um, where do we go from here? I know it's, 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 a, it's a big question, it? Uh, but how do we uh, improve the delivery of services for indigenous communities going forward? <laughs> I know. I I, yeah, I know uh, that that's such a huge
1: question. But it is a huge <laughs> question. I am a fan of the devolution of authorities and jurisdiction to First Nations themselves. They would still have to be under, I guess, self-government agreements with fiscal transfer arrangements. They don't really have the, I guess, uh, I guess authorities and jurisdiction to start collecting revenue through, um, extensive taxation of their own citizens. It would be difficult in small communities. Uh, there would have to be some sort of equalization, but there are those, uh, large enough that can enter into self-government agreements and assume control of the programming and services with, uh, the support of transfers from the federal government. There's also the, the more lingering question in decolonization that entails addressing First Nation First Nation sovereignty. There's, there's some communities that are really pressing for their own sovereignty. Some want to be another order of, of government uh, at the federal level. Um, there's different arrangements for different communities. Some, it would leave it to them and that would be truly self-determination for them to set up their own system of governance, how they see fit and find themselves entering into relations with the government on their own terms rather than um, top-down dictation from above.
0: And given all these differing wants from different communities of different sizes, uh, do you think that this change... Uh, this devolution of um, INAC to two separate ministries, do you think that it, this new structure would be more receptive and more flexible to these different wants? Or is it just going to be the same story as we've been experiencing for God knows how long?
1: Well, you know, it creates, it adds another ministry. And now they're going to have to talk to one another and in my own experience, having worked at INAC and having worked at Health Canada's uh, First Nation Inuit Health branch, I've seen the difficulty in, in coordinating federal policy. For the longest time, they would argue, and, and this ha- happened for, with Jordan's principle, is those two departments implicated in this particular area of Indigenous affairs it took them a long time to come to see eye to eye on uh, roles and responsibilities in that aspect Also, I remember not too long ago is the transfer of assisted living from INAC to Health Canada for their administration and these internal disagreements between two departments. And now instead of having one coordinating minister or one minister to give the executive direction within one department, now it's going to be two departments that will have to talk to each other and probably go through their ministers first – uh, for significant changes. So if one if policy wants to affect uh, program and service delivery, now they're going to have to coordinate those two departments. Of course, it can always be dictated from above, but um, instead of having one minister saying, yes, we're going to do this, now it's one minister saying, well, I'm going to have to talk to my cabinet colleague. Um, I'm going to have to negotiate with the other department to do this so we may have a new policy on education well that's going to come from carolyn Bennett, uh the policy formulation and then going over to jane philpot who will have to deliver the education services and programs so they may not necessarily it may take a long time and bureaucratic wrangling so it, uh, it introduces a little, a little bit more of that, um,
0: you know, bureaucracy and red tape. <laughs> well, mm. thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast, Mr. Coburn. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you want to read Veldon Coburn's article, The Dismantling of Indigenous and in Northern Affairs Canada, just follow the link in the podcast description. The Policy Options podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, favorite podcast app so don't forget to subscribe. As for the important news I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I want to let you know that today's episode was my last one, hosting the podcast. I've had the privilege of hosting the podcast for the majority of its 44 episodes and will always appreciate the support that you, the listeners, have given me since our first episode back in 2015. Of course, a special thank you to everyone here at the Institute for Research on Public Policy for giving me the opportunity to be a part of something so important podcast will be continuing on without me as for information on a new host listen to our next episode to find out more thanks for tuning in